Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking public attitudes to R&D, international students and dependents, and the sector's relationship with autocracies. It's all coming up. The consequence of that will be high immigration and, and cross-subsidies and, you know, universities you know, looking for new ways to support themselves financially. And I think that's the kind of next bridge for the sector to cross, is to, is to bring those two problems together and to kind of uh, point, at, point at the funding situation and point at the, the immigration and say, you know, the, these, are, these are part of the same, the same thing. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief Mark Leach and joining me this week to look inside this week's bag of HE tricks is three fabulous guests as always. In SoCon Trent, it's Martin Jones, Vice-Chancellor of Staffordshire University. Martin, your hire to the week, please. Mark, glad to be here today. Fantastic week uh, for me. Um, staff conference uh, um, this week, um, so it's been, a, it's been a great week in SoCon Trent and Staffordshire. In Camden, it's Jess Lister, Associate Director for Education at Public First. Jess, your hire to the week. Morning, Mark, we've had a busy week as well. Uh, we finally launched our Discovery Decade work with Case, uh, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later. We've also had the second go at our citizen panel uh, up in Manchester uh, with all the great Manchester universities. Uh, so we've got 50 people in a room talking about universities, uh, which is my favourite thing to do. And in Oxford, it's Michael Salmon, Wonky's news editor and podcast producer. Michael, your highlight of the week, please. Well, last week I was in Bath at the university um, there having a very enjoyable time, but my highlight of this week has very much been getting back home, seeing my family and sleeping in my own bed again. Uh, we start the week with public attitudes to research and development. Big new report out from the Campaign for Science Engineering. That's Case. Uh, Michael, walk us through it. Yeah, so this really is a big report. It's a huge amount of surveying and focus grouping has gone into this to see what does the UK public think about R&D in, in kind of coming at it from lots and lots of different angles. You know, they're looking at it by class and gender and ethnicity and region you know how how do people learn about it who do they think funds it who does it you know what's their feelings about it there's loads to dive into here um you know i, I the sort of headline that case put forward uh, around it was that you know they suggest that public support for government investment feels a bit fragile. Um, so we had, you know, 46% of people from, from a very big sample you know, saying that the government should only really be investing more in R&D when the UK economy is in better shape. It's not a sort of top priority like the cost of living crisis or the NHS. Um, you know, and, and even we had about a quarter of people disagreeing that R&D should be funded by the taxpayer and quite a lot of people feeling neutral about that issue. Um, you know, and and something else quite interesting was that the, there wasn't a clear sense in the public's mind who does R and D. What does this What does this word necessarily mean? Um, you know, it, people associated it more with businesses um, the, and sort of you know consumer goods really than than universities or scientists. And and there was also a sort of a bit of suspicion about it even you know pe some people felt it benefits big businesses it benefits the wealthy more um it also has a bigger impact sort of somewhere else you know not in their local area but more you know perhaps down south or in oxford and cambridge but it's it wasn't always seen as something that is really benefit fitting people's lives directly lovely right uh, there's a lot to unpack here i mean um martin the does this ring true for you? I mean, do, one of the striking things that, that jumped out at me from this polling was, you know, the amount of people that, that say, you know, R&D doesn't essentially have that much impact on my lives, particularly when you kind of put it against issues like um, the cost of living crisis and, and those kind of things. Um, do, would you say that is something you, you've you seen locally? And if so, what role does the university have to explain the importance of it? 
Mark, a great question, really, really important uh, report, which I uh, enjoyed reading. Uh, what I found interesting about the report, Mark, was uh, what folk actually understand by R&D, you know, the use of terminology, the use, the use of lo uh, language and location kind of jumped out for me. And the, the recommendation on the report, just outside the exec summary of giving R&D a sense of location can help it connect with people. Rings true for me, you know, talking uh, from the university sector of how we locate research uh, in the sense of how we communicate communicate R&D in terms of what universities do. But the challenge for me, really, is how we think we, we locate the case for research R&D in the community. Uh, you know, so most universities, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of put all their ref stats, all the ref stats there about percent international and world leading. Um, when, I, when I personally have those conversations with civic stakeholders, you have to further explain what that actually means. Um, so I think, you know, simplifying the language uh, and locating and connecting with communities what universities actually do in understandable language is part, I think, of an overall comms campaign. Uh, that's not made easy, of course, by the fact that, uh, you know, government has a particularly, uh, you know, kind of fuzzy, re fuzzy relationship with the university sector about supporting research and R&D. Um, although, of course, we've got Horizon back on the agenda. So I think there's a national comms story as well as a local connectivity story to make sure folk in the civic community and civil society understand what we do, what the benefits are to them increasingly, as you say, Mark, in terms of other more pertinent things such as cost of living, but also kind of how we actually have impact for them, not kind of just in a ref impact, but how, how we have impact in our, in our communities. And I'll just applaud some of the work done by, you know, by million plus, you know, in taking research into the community, talking about the benefit of a foundational economy and connecting with place uh, in the various places that we do. I was actually surprised by some of the findings. Um, it didn't make me feel good. It tells you how far we've got to go as a, a you know, uh, as a sector, really, Mark. Jess, who is, you, you worked on this for Public First. Who, who is the audience for, for this report? Is it universities in that, um, you know, what, as part of the ecosystem, it needs to kind of up, it, up its game a bit here. Um, is, it, is it politicians who need to understand um, the public, pub, how the public view about view R&D? Or, or, you know, where, what's, the, what, what, what's this trying to do? Yes, yeah, so um, I should say there's, there's a, a really big team in Public First and across Case uh, that have done most of the work for this, and I just get to come and take all the credit at the end, uh, which is great. Um, but I think I think the aim of this was to uh, create a data set that can be used for anyone that advocates for R&D or wants to understand it better. So, you know, if, if it is used by government, then that's great. But I think the main thing is, you know, there are the universities and, you know, a huge number of sector bodies uh, kind of convened by case and uh, you know, trusts and institutes that think about this stuff all of the time. And what we tried to do is is build the first large scale evidence base. So it's a poll of, you know, in total, 18,000 people, uh, which is, is is massive. You know, most polls that you'll see uh, you could do or, or that we do are normally kind of 1,000 to 2,000 people. Um, so you can really on a kind of quite micro level, you know, once you you get beyond the headlines, break down, you know, what people in different places, of uh, different genders, different ethnicities, you know, think about R&D. Um, and then I think the the other thing is, you know, as as you might have seen from from some of the coverage, there, there's so much data here that it is hard to pick out what the narrative is. Because on the one hand, there's a high level of kind of surface level support for the concept of R and D, but there's a low profile for it. So 50% um, of people think it has nothing much to do with them. You know, I'd say nearly 90% of the country have got an mRNA or AstraZeneca vaccine in them at the minute. So it has quite a lot to do with them, uh, but they're not making that connection. Um, most people haven't heard the phrase science superpower. They don't know what the government's mission is on this. They don't really care very much. There's lots of kind of apathy about it. And then the surface level support that is there is quite fragile. Um, so, you know, as, as was kind of said at the beginning, people think it's, it's a bit of a luxury. It doesn't take much pushing to get people to agree that you should half the R&D budget, um, which is obviously, you know, that would have a massive impact. Um, but, you know, the, the depth of the support isn't there. And I think that's what anyone who thinks about R&D a lot should be most worried about. Mm, yeah, because we're heading into a general election cycle. And if you're looking at this, if you're if you're a political party that is looking to form a government after an election, and you're looking at this, and you're looking about what am I going to promise you know, in a manifesto, what, what's going to connect with people? It's going to be extremely difficult to wait because uh, you know, even if even if you buy the arguments about um, 
uh, economic growth that comes from R and D, um, you know, all, all the all the reasons we know why it's basically a good thing. Um, even if you buy all that, it's still quite difficult to to. It takes well, put it this way, it takes a bit of political leadership, doesn't it, to say, you know, we know you, you know, essentially, we know you don't really care about this, but it's really important that we have to make this a, a kind of massive national priority. But if you're if you're just if you're just trying to win an election and you're just trying to get over the line. Uh, you could see how you might look at the data and think, well, this this is just not an area that's going to give us mm. any anything, anything at all. And I think one of the most important things that came out in the research is is that people like to hear about the tangible benefits. So if you we did a lot of focus groups for this work, and if you if you start to tell them about you know jobs created and growth and research outputs, the support goes up massively. What they are sort of less convinced by is, is something the R and D community talks a. a a lot about at the minute which is the sort of idea of the you know the wonder of discovery and the wonder of innovation and blue skies research you know all, all of that is great but from a public opinion point of view they want to be able to connect the sort of money going in the things that are happening and the impact kind of on their lives and they're not making that link as naturally as, as people might assume mm, yeah yeah Martin, I mentioned how you, how do you talk about it uh, when you're talking to people in the local community? Well, what's interesting is the finding uh, on the difference between 18 to 24-year-olds and those over 65. So the report on the findings is notably 18 to 24-year-olds were less likely than those 65 plus to say that R&D would generate new local jobs. It's 60 versus 79% or bring investment to the area. More worryingly, more worryingly is the next sentence, they were equally less likely to say um, that it would open, open up educational possibilities. So I think that's an important connection of how R&D is linked to the fact of what universities do in terms of learning and teaching and curriculum research. Your question mark is, how do we do it um, um, in terms of how the university sector does it? Uh, I'm privileged to be part of a university-sponsored multi-academy trust. And so we've had hundreds of school kids on our site this week, like most universities like ours, looking and seeing our facilities. Uh, four and a half thousand kids in our mat regularly come here and see firsthand our forensic uh, science facilities and our other lab facilities. And that's a deliberate attempt, I think, by a university like ours embedded in its civic locality to try and change some of these perceptions early on. Uh, in certain terms of seeing what benefit you can have, uh, you know, down your kind of kind of educational pipeline, but given the kind of um, you know the um, those voting figures, that, that stark difference between 18 to 24 year olds versus over 65 is something I think is a challenge for the sector in terms of how we get there and, and uh, turn around this perception. And Jess is right. I mean, the size of this survey is is massive. Yeah, Martin, I think that's a really interesting point about you know the the sort of the young people's perception of research and development what can what can those in higher education do about it if young people don't really feel like they know what r&d is what the benefits are i mean I, i'd suggest one of the big things we can do is really make sure that r&d is involved in university teaching you know that students who are doing even at undergraduate level are getting experience of how universities interact with their communities how they are involved in r&d so you know when they graduate they really have a clear sense of of what research and development is what its benefits are what it feels like um you know that that was just something that occurred to me listening to you speak i mean the the other thing i was thinking about here case is very focused on you know how do we speak about what's our narrative what's the message um, when we're talking about r d publicly which is definitely very important but i think there's probably also a longer term you know, question of who is working in our research systems, who's included, who's, you know, whose voices are there, who, who's who's shaping the direction. You know, there's a, there's a question of inclusion. I think we already know, you know, there's issues with racial diversity, for example, in, in research. You know, also it, it, it makes you think about questions of class and about the geograph geographical spread of research. You know, I wonder how likely are, is the average member of the public to know somebody working in R&D and I imagine there's there's a lot of places in the country where it, it's quite unlikely. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Liz Austin, and this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about evaluation gaps in higher education and how to close them. I suggest that the HE sector needs more support to develop confidence with evaluation and is struggling with a range of wicked evaluation issues. I worry that continuous calls to evaluate causally and increase the quality and volume of evaluation only contribute to this problem. I don't think anyone's learning by just being told to do more and do it better. 
I also introduce a new QAA collaborative enhancement project, which hopes to help. This summer, the Evaluation Collective will publish the first edition of an agony-style zine, which responds to wicked evaluation issues that have been crowdsourced from the sector. Follow the Evaluation Collective on Twitter to stay in the loop. Now, at the end of last week, we got some immigration figures uh, from the ONS, um, which painted a very interesting, possibly troubling picture. Jess, walk us through it. So yes, we had the latest quarterly immigration figures, uh, two main headlines to come out of it. Um, the first is there's 81% more sponsored study visas issued in 2022 compared to 2019. Now, obviously, some of this is a result of changes due to Brexit. Uh, EU students now need a visa. Um, there's an increase in non-EU students uh, that have come in kind of because of, of, of Brexit and the decline in EU students. Um, there's been a change in, in you know, where international students come to when they come to study in the UK. Uh, And then the second is that 22%, so nearly a quarter of all study-related visas, were granted to dependents uh, of students, and that's compared to only 6% in 2019. So if anyone's wondering, um, you know, what's got the Home Office nervous about uh, a student in immigration recently, um, this this, this is probably probably something to do with it. Um, As Jim has pointed out on Wonky, you know, there's, there's a big difference between the kind of social infrastructure needed to support a student who comes to the UK with their family, you know, they, they need they need a house, they need uh, suitable housing, they're going to need childcare, you know, they need to access local schools, to a sort of 18-year-old student who can live in a 12 by 12 box in a, in a halls of residence. Um, and as we've seen at the start of this year, you know, housing was a real problem uh, in certain parts of the UK. And the Times has reported again that the government is uh, looking to draw up plans to limit um, the number of students bringing dependents uh, to those on designated sort of high quality, high value courses. So your sciences, maths and engineering courses, uh, as well as considering a ban on students bringing families uh, with them unless they're studying for a PhD. Right. Uh, there's a lot here. Um Martin, th- there is a real problem, isn't there? Um, I, you know, I think most of the sector agrees that... Um, you know the Home Office and the and the, and and some of the kind of sabre rattling is, you know, unhelpful in many ways. But there is there is a case to answer, isn't there, in terms of just the the sheer amount of students that are coming with dependents, and you can sort of understand and 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 the capacity issues that's bringing, and so you can sort of understand why there are concerns about about what to do about it. There are. I mean, this is a political hot potato, and I'd commend the battles between our Home Secretary and Education Secretary defending the sector, but also the reaction on uh, on Twitter to Jim's blog of the you know the 23rd of February. The immediate reaction was, "Wow, look at these figures." I mean, what I would argue for, for Mark, I think, is a more nuanced presentation of the data. Uh, you know, to inform public debate. You know, this is uh, visas issues issued that might differ from students actually turning up. Uh, and that's an important part. I mean, the you know, and and also the a debate about the contribution uh, that international students continue to make. But also, there's a perception out there that this is a you know international undergraduates when it's masters and PhD students. Not to kind of like, you know poo-poo the figures, but the figures I think need to be put in context of the contributions that international students make. Uh, so I think I'd, I'd call for a kind of a, you know a nuanced presentation of the data and a more balanced presentation of the arguments and the benefits. In certain localities, this is landing slightly differently depending on the stock of accommodation, private sector uh, versus the university sector, the ability uh, you know to uh, you know to access childcare. So there is there's an issue bubbling away there i mean i would support uk's line on this which is to argue for the positivity and more balanced presentation of the data but also to bring a public reassurance to the fact this is a benefit to economic growth and economic development but also to to push the line of the switch from uh, from student visas to work visas you know to maintain that line that it should be for students that have completed their course but also to to bring to the fore the data on students that actually return to the to the places that they come to so the nigerian influx of students is interesting i mean it maps onto post brexit uh, patterns it's about you know particular form of geopolitics but the benefits that those students bring to the sectors uh, certainly talking from my part of the sector a lot of the students coming from nigeria are coming through international business management at MA at master's level but also as a fair chunk of PhD students so I think it's, it's really interesting I think 
that data needs to be put in a nuanced context. Um, Michael, there, I mean, there's, there is something going on here, isn't there, with this this idea that, um, and we talked a bit about this on, on The Wonky Show before, but, I mean, the idea that in, in some markets, in some regions of the world, a British university degree is being sold as as, as kind of economic migration to the United Kingdom. And, you know, we've seen lots of direct and indirect evidence of that. Um, and that is a big shift. That's not traditionally the the kind of the compact between universities and the and the and the states um, in, the, in what is, you know, in why and how we're meant to be bringing international students uh, to this country and, and, and what for. So that is, there, there is a shift going on, isn't there? And, that, and we're starting, it's, it's starting to be noticed. Yeah, I mean, that, that idea of a compact, I think, is a, is a very interesting way of looking at it. Because, you know, this question about students sort of coming to study in the UK for sort of self-interested purposes, planning to switch to work visas, often encouraged to do so by agents. I mean, th that is the thing I think the sector has been kind of clearest about that, you know, this is the thing where students shouldn't be doing that, um, that, you know, there's something almost unethical about it, you know, but that that, that kind of idea that okay students are sort of making a compact with the university the universities are offering them something and that you know that it needs to be it needs to be upheld it needs to be relied on when students are being recruited you know for primarily for financial reasons and the, the financial considerations have just become so pressing so important you know then it's sort of inevitable that the compact is breaking down on the student side too and it's the same with what you mentioned about you know the sort of between the universities and the government um, you know, this compact is inevitably going to change as international fees become the foundation of the, um, you know, the, 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 of university finances, the one, the one area where universities can, can do things below cost as opposed to above cost. Um, you know, so it's sort of inevitable that there's, there's unintended consequences throughout the system when, and, it, you know, these weren't necessarily planned for, I mean, some, so, Two, two years ago, we had the graduate route being sort of reintroduced um, and it's had a, a lot of consequences. And I think we should you need to kind of recognize that when the sector was lobbying for the graduate route, they were essentially lobbying for additional, you know, some negatives as well as some positives impact on accommodation, impact on, you know, as we've sort of talked about briefly, sort of campus spaces and, and, and the university's relationship with their communities. You know, it's not just a matter of economic benefits and both the government in making these legislative changes and the sector in lobbying for them it, it do need to sort of contingent, contingency plan for these things in a way that it feels like it hasn't really been done. Um, obviously, sort of bouncing back from COVID and the sort of complications around the international travel ha have made it incredibly complicated to sort of, you know, measure. And uh, these shifts just seem enormous. Um, but they are, you know, there there are other factors in there as well. But uh, uh, you know, and as Martin said, that the headline stats are not always the full picture. Um, but yeah, there 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 is an, a sort of need to. To, to think about how we speak about this issue in in the sector it's it is a very complicated one mm -hmm. and i mean just the is it's not well understood is it i mean what you know what that compact looks like in, in terms particularly things like how um you know back to our conversation about r&d but how how much research inside universities is essentially paid for by international students um you know there's there's a lot of things that are pretty counterintuitive there's no reason why people would know that's how kind of that's how it that's how it all works so again you know if you're a politician looking at um these numbers um what's the conclusion what is the conclusion you're going to draw in terms of what what the public expects so i think um you know the the political debate about uh, student immigration sort of has kind of re-emerged in the last three months when a lot of the sector sort of thought it was it was settled. You say we had we had new graduate routes, we had new high talent visas. It, it's we had a kind of uh, international student and education strategy, and it all seemed to be going quite well. I think a lot of this is to do with the kind of ongoing long-standing kind of scepticism of low quality HE in the UK and how that is funded. So, so low quality is in, you know, the kind of conservative narrative about, about that. 
Um, you know, previously it was a worry that it was, you know, some HE was a waste of UK taxpayers' money. So, you know, students were taking out loans, uh, you know, bumped up by the taxpayer, and they were never going to pay them off, and the Treasury was going to have to foot the bill. I think now what is is also happening is is that you know these these perceived kind of low value courses institutions are contributing to the kind of high immigration figures the government needs to tackle politically. Um, so, you know students are lumped in with with the overall kind of immigration number, and as as long as as that continues to happen and you know decreasing immigration becomes a you know even bigger political priority for the Conservatives as they have to kind of distance themselves from from Labour and kind of you know, show they're doing well in a conservative thing. Um, students are going to be back in the kind of sight lines of that. Um, how it links back to the kind of fees and funding debate is is then really really interesting because you know there is there is no appetite really from from government on on either side to increase the amount of of overall government money that's going into UKHE. But neither is there this kind of you know understanding or, or will to understand that. The consequence of that will be high immigration and and cross subsidies, and you know universities you know looking for new ways to support themselves financially, and I think that's the kind of next bridge for the sector to cross is to, is to bring those two problems together and to kind of uh, point at point at the funding situation and point at the the immigration and say you know the, these are these are part of the same the same thing. Yeah, really, I think the way forward is to urge government to continue to work with the sector to address and mitigate any concerns locally and nationally. I think it's the local and the national. Uh, in, I think, a balanced and constructive way, I think, rather than uh, entertain a debate about blunt bans that would, I think, adversely uh, kind of affect the UK's reputation in the economy, but also some of those key trading relationships that are opening up around India and Nigeria. So I think you know, there is a concern, but being slightly more balanced, but you know, it's important. What's really interesting is, certainly in my context, I've had conversations that we've not had about, uh, you know, kind of cosmopolitan uh, you know, relationships, the benefit for kind of uh, home students of having this cosmopolitan learning environment, the way that that diversifies the communities in which a lot of our universities are based, uh, but also joint working between universities, because certainly on my patch, we've seen two universities uh, have, you know, exponential explosion of numbers from similar countries. So in a sense, it's we're having conversations that we're not having before about community building, which is really productive and not detrimental. It's not the case that it's displacing opportunity locally from, from home students uh, in terms of that, but it's something we're going to have to watch in terms of the carrying capacity of our accommodation, should that be the case. I think that's why that debate will start to turn. So the strategic planning dimension that colleagues are calling for is real. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Martin, about the sort of the conversations we're having i mean the fact that it's the home office with you know a big portion of responsibility for the size and shape of the sector is not great i mean it really curtails the opportunity to have proper discussions about our overall system you know we get decisions made without real thinking through how it changes the sort of scale of and 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 just you know and even this sort of education that happens within universities is being is being affected by sort of shifts that are really just done for 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 the purposes of visa numbers and 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 sort of appealing to a certain sort of portion of the media i mean it's it's kind of interesting to think about some of the potential unforeseen consequences of you know doing things like taking away dependent visa rights from master students i mean you could imagine a world in which that means then that we we're going to suddenly have a big sort of change in the structure of the sector where there's a lot more students coming to do PhDs and MRESs than there have been before and the taught masters becomes you know and there's there's all kinds of things that can happen and while it's the home office that's sort of making making these decisions and you know there's the DFE is sort of fighting them and 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 the university's not really talking to the home office in the way that we talk to other departments it it, it is really quite difficult to have these good conversations and just to bring in you know two other government departments i think i think the the scope for debate across government for this is is really high so you've got jeremy hunt at the start of the year from the treasury doing a speech saying you know if anyone's thinking about starting or investing in innovation and technology um in the uk you know in sorry i'll do that again if anyone is thinking of starting you know or investing in innovation or technology centered businesses i want them to come and do that in the uk 
and you've got George Freeman sort of saying he wants to build clusters that are, you know, safe spaces for people to raise a family and do, you know, really difficult, high risk research and innovation. None of that speaks to me about kind of curtailing the, you know, ability of people to come do these kind of high risk, high value innovation, technology, businesses, degrees, and not bring their families with them um it seems that that is is actually kind of a key a key part of of other agendas in government um just not quite the home office yet i think also there's a connection to our previous item because some of this is i think misunderstanding how research happens in terms of how research is not just you know kind of academics in white coats in labs it's you know you're uh, you're kind of more than undergraduate community at ma and phd level so I think there's a, there is a kind of really interesting connection to the previous item we were discussing on you know on education in terms of how we educate communities on how R&D is a pipeline activity linked to universities and their kind of masters and PhD curriculum communities. Now, Wonky's associate editor for research innovation, James Coe, is here to tell us what is and what isn't happening with Horizon Europe and the UK's affiliation this week. Hi, this is Associate Editor for Research and Innovation, James, calling in with a bad cold to talk about all things Horizon Europe. So, the Northern Ireland Protocol, this was the temporary arrangement to ensure the free movement of goods between Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, has been replaced by the Windsor Framework. The Windsor Framework provides a series of joint oversight mechanisms between Northern Ireland, the wider UK, and the European Union on things like the movement of goods, the free movement of people, how laws are applied, etc. In theory, this therefore also removes the largest stumbling block to the United Kingdom associating to Horizon Europe. In a press conference, Rishi Sunak and Ursula von Leyen said that uh, negotiations on Horizon could start straight away. This does not mean that association to Horizon will start straight away, and there is a lively debate as to how quickly it can happen. My own view is that it's likely to take closer to six months than it will be immediately. Some have said up to a year, some have said it should only be a matter of technicalities. The largest block is negotiating a fee for association. Previous predictions were based on the UK associating for the full programme. This will clearly not be the case anymore, so a new fee must be negotiated. In the meantime, George Freeman, the new minister at DSIST, has came out and said that we should start moving towards Plan B until Horizon comes on the table and that we will have to do something as it may take up to a year. It has quickly got very complicated in a situation that seemed to be so close to being resolved. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now my co-host Jim is here to tell us all about the secret life of students. Hi, it's Jim from the team here with news of the secret life of students. Back for its fourth year, we're going to take the opportunity to get real about students, bringing together sector leaders and managers, as well as student leaders and students union managers, to get an accurate and unvarnished picture of the student condition in 2023, so we can work out how to respond rather than just react. Shifting from a surface-level understanding of student satisfaction with services to a deeper understanding of their motivations, ambitions and lives can be hugely rewarding and important both for them and those supporting them. It's also vital in an age that seems quick to assume, judge and condemn students rather than listen, understand and act on their concerns. So at the event, we'll be asking questions like, what are students doing when they're not in the classroom? 
Where is the line between their desire to collaborate and regulations that ban collusion? Is it true they're not prepared to debate and discuss controversial issues? Why do they rate assessment and feedback so badly on the NSS? And how many are confident about being real students, let alone what comes next? On the day, we'll feature key findings into the student experience from the past year. We'll launch exciting new research into the student learning experience beyond the classroom. And we'll launch our new Student Insights platform, Belong, a wonky group GTI initiative. And we'll share the first findings from its research. It's an essential event for anyone working on policy and delivery for students. That's the secret life of students. London, March the 14th. We'd love to see you there. Go to wonky.com forward slash events and book now. Universities and autocracies. There's been a House of Commons committee investigation to this uh, over the last few days. Martin, talk us through it. Yeah, this is very, very exciting and interesting in terms of whether the government should be uh, regulating or legislating more on universities' engagements. With with China, of course, was in the spotlight at House of Commons this week. This was the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee that had previously called uh, in November 2019 in the report a cautious embrace uh, called for a kind of number of measures and evidence about what the sector is doing this, uh, yeah, in this area. I listened to the full committee uh, you know, this week. The committee was asked to look at what measures universities had undertaken since the 2019 Cautious Embrace report to reduce the influence uh, of particularly Chinese uh, Communist Party influences on, quote, non, uh, supposed non-democratic regimes on academic life. Uh, the need to distinguish between beneficial and potential harmful modes of academic engagement, but also uh, what measures the government universities were taking and had taken, I think, to reduce uh, financial reliance. I think, as Wonky has outlined previously, it's clear that the committee was interested in predominantly research partnerships uh, in China, and this came up with examples in the committee. I think the general feeling from the committee was that higher education sector is getting better at mitigating risks since the report of uh, November 2019 in man- mitigating risks in terms of international reputation and collaborations. Though the committee probed deeply, and it's worth watching the, the full video of the committee to see whether further legislation uh, and regulation was indeed needed in this context. It was suggested, uh, Viv Stern, Chief Executive UK, was, was part of the committee, uh, giving evidence that it was uh, far easier for universities to understand what they should and shouldn't be doing. Uh, I think my take on this, and we'll come back later, it might be uh, you know, taking a sledgehammer to crack a nut. There was lots of good practice that was given uh, at the Foreign Affairs Committee, but also I think, I think there's some room for improvement. A really interesting item. Hmm. Yes, and I think we've got a clip of uh, some of that session. Here it is. There's the um, National Security Investment Act, there's the Export Control Act, the new um, uh, provisions in the freedom of um, in the academic Freedom of freedom of speech. Oh, I've got freedom the bill. Of um, it's becoming a bit Byzantine. I guess the one thing I'd like to say is we've got it. If you ask a lot of people who are responsible for discharging these responsibilities in universities, they will tell you they are overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think the government needs to help us streamline this, make it easier for universities to understand what they should and shouldn't be doing under the law. And, uh, and, you know, to try to eliminate duplication and overlap between these legislative frameworks. Just to summarise then, it's, it's in our national interest to sustain some kinds of research links. Yep. There is not enough support on due diligence and the regulatory landscape is now a nightmare. Yeah, and legislative as well as regulatory. Yeah. A quick follow-up on that. Uh, look, we are not at, in a cold war with China, but you said we should be partnering with the best... But in the 70s and 80s, the best was the Russians. And we weren't suggesting that we should have been sharing science and research with the Russians in the 70s and 80s. So why should we be risking dual-use research analysis now when we recognise that China is a hostile state when it comes to, unfortunately, many of the arenas we're working in together? We absolutely were working with the Russians during the 70s and 80s. Not in, in sensitive areas. technologies I mean, and science. No, and, and absolutely that's, not. There, there, are, there, are, there are always areas where, you know, you have to protect your national interest. And, we're not, and, and that's the challenge. But, um, this is a really fascinating area, isn't it, Um Michael, I'm going to pick on you because um, you you lived in China um, and there has been quite a journey the UK has been on, hasn't it, in terms of in terms of the kind of what politicians think about uh, the UK's relationship with China, and even in the last few months, how how the kind of the, the you know the shifting influence of different voices in in Westminster has led to you know quite quite different. Um, different policies and different at the very least different kind of different mood music it's sort of 
you can understand why it's getting so tricky for universities to keep up with what the what the latest thinking is. Yeah, I, so I, di- I did live and work in China for quite a long time, but I would like to just say I wasn't involved in any, you know, drone technology development with the People's Liberation Army, just to get that on the record. Um, I, you, would, you would say that, though, wouldn't you? Well, perhaps. Um, and, and in fact, we did have somebody at the committee um, from RAND Europe saying that there needs to be more monitoring monitoring of where academics go in China, where they live, all this kind of stuff. So that, you know, there, there, there are a lot of voices, you know, in within government, as we've seen, Alicia Keynes, the chair was, um, you know, on, 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 on good form, um, and, and is a real China hawk. And is in this chairship is a very influential position. Um, you know, as you alluded to, and in fact, as last time I was on the podcast, it had just been in the news that, you know, Rishi Sunak had been sort of calming down the rhetoric a bit and saying, you know, not, you know, not going as far as to saying that China's a threat, um, you know, and so it, it is hard to know what universities um, are supposed to sort of make of the longer term things. And they were very clearly, you know, we had Tim Bradshaw, Vivian Stern, and uh, other important voices from the sector all sort of saying, we'd like clearer guidance from the government, um, especially about China. Um, and I think there is a sense where, you know, it, it's hard just to sort of do it through a legislative and, and regulatory framework, which is by the sounds of it becoming incredibly complicated. Um, because really, the question here is that the UK's relationship with China is, is special in the eyes of the government in terms of it, it you know, their for some people in the government, they're our enemy. There was mention of the Cold War, there was mention of Russia, there was mention of, you know, what happens when there's the, this break, um, you know, and so it's it's hard to apply the same standards that universities are doing in their risk assessments when they're looking at partnerships with, you know, Gulf countries or other autocracies. I mean, because China is, is being treated differently by the government. Um, they are seen as a competitor and a rival and potentially an enemy in certain areas um you know so the, yeah we had the sectors calling for clearer guidance clearer red lines but probably you know less or certainly not more legislation it's it's a difficult um sort of needle to thread and the results could well be you know the way that the government does guidance is by legislating further there's something to 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 keep an eye out when they respond to the integrated review and security quite soon mm. Um, Jess, so one of the concerns, isn't it, uh, is about Ukraine. So, I mean, the the sort of the template, anyway, that that um, has now been created for how to deal with um, uh, a kind of hostile regime, short of going to war. So, um, you know, the way that that the Russia was frozen out of, of the international community. Um, obviously, very few Russian students come to the UK comparatively. Um, if such a situation was happened to China, then back to our question uh, discussion about um, international recruitment, um, it would be catastrophic, wouldn't it? If if um, numbers of numbers of Chinese students were to be to, to actually fall off or were to be prevented from from coming for for these kind of geo, geopolitical reasons, so there is there is real concern, isn't there? Well, yeah, I mean, we would then really see a, a, a fees and funding issue uh, I mean, in UK yeah, higher education. Exactly, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, you think it's bad now, yeah. Um, I think, and I think that is part of the political problem. There is there is two things that people like, you know, Alicia Kearns, Tom Tugendhat, who's now the security minister, you know, the, the kind of more hawkish, um, China hawkish politicians, they think that UK higher education is, is over-reliant on China, uh, which limits its ability to, you know, say no or to turn a blind eye to things. Um, and they think that they're slightly naive to the risk. Uh, and part of that is because I don't think they've seen enough evidence from the sector that those two things aren't true. You know, that they're, then they're very alive to the risk and they have, you know, I'm, I'm sure endless pages of um, principles and and protocol and procedures for this internally. They don't talk about enough. They're guided by government, by the security services uh, that they probably can't talk about, um, but, but maybe should find a way to more. Um, and then I think the over-reliance question, you know, it is is trickier. There are, there are some universities that I don't know if they could hand on art say, you know, we aren't reliant on China and, and that will take time to untangle. Um, but when it, you know, comes to uh, universities' engagement with autocracies was the was the theme of the of the session. 
and there are, are lots of people that would think universities should have no engagement with autocracies um, and, and there, there is no obvious reason why you should work with, with Chinese universities. I mean, the, the obvious reason is, is that they do so much of global R&D and, you know, that, that you know, not on, on top of the kind of soft power, um, you know, global collaboration arguments. Um, but it's not obvious to everyone uh, that that's the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, Martin, obviously China looms looms really large in this um, in this debate, naturally, for, for a bunch of reasons. But there are other autocracies in the world and universities have kind of long tentacles, don't they, in terms of relationships and, and dealings. It's a difficult balance to strike. Um, but what how would you how would you present it in, in terms of, you know, who, who who where would where wouldn't you work? Well, I think I'd rather than the specifics of a country. I think, uh, yeah, I think we need to reassure reassure our communities that universities actually do undertake due diligence in this area. And what was interesting listening to the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, there was, uh, I think, a prof from Exeter uh, that said that uh, in some universities, uh, this was only the domain of ethics committees that deal with you know human characteristic and not characteristics and not geopolitics. Universities don't have geopolitical committees, but Places that I've worked in, places that I know, I want to reassure uh, kind of listeners to this that there are deeply embedded due diligence procedures, uh, often subgroups of partnership committees where the concerns that were expressed at the committee, uh, you know, there are procedures and practices. And I draw attention to the great document that UUK issued in 2019 that was reissued on the 22nd of December of last year called Managing Risks in Internationalisation, Security-Related Issues in Higher Education. I think that document, if the sector followed it, we wouldn't need legislation because what you would have, I think, is a series of checklist protocols that there's governance embeddedness uh, around due diligence, governance around related issues of security around data, uh, but also the promotion of the values of UK higher education that are in there. I've certainly spent a lot of my time involved in these due diligence, due diligence committees that involve, in some cases, working with the police in, uh, you know, kind of the Saudi area, uh, raising certain issues about you know, humanitarian concerns, etc. But I think these issues are debated in universities, and we're not kind of blind to these relationships. There are embedded, you know, due diligence, you know, subcommittees that uh, that go through this, and yeah, often it's a difficult call. Uh, 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 in terms of that so I think some guidance but what I wouldn't call for is legislation per se I think the 62 page document that UUK reissued in December last year does have some really really interesting key key recommendations in this context. Michael I'm I'm interested in your view about this issue on on the Confucius Institutes which which keeps coming up and I know there are some people that would would say they need to be banned in this in this context. It's a it's a tricky one though, isn't it? Because there there is there is a there's a case to be made that kind of keeping up a kind of cultural and educational connection with China is is good uh, for other reasons. Yeah, uh, I I I mean, and I would certainly be saying that. I think it's it's horrifying the sort of um, okay, maybe not horrifying, but it's 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 very disappointing the um you know the sort of low level of engagement with China that we have as a country in terms of you know how many students study it, how much we speak the language, um, you know how much we engage with it in its in its sort of you know its media and its and its culture and all these sorts of things. When it's such an important country, it's also such an interesting country, and it's really worth doing. Um, my question would be with Confucius Institutes. I mean, I I sort of certainly agree with those um, who who suggest the issue is you know somewhat overblown in that they're not big things and they are mostly just doing little language classes and organizing quite sort of mild and dare I say dull cultural events I mean there is a question of influence but I, I don't think it comes anywhere near the scale of you know proper big research partnerships and this whole thing Jess has been saying about student recruitment you know these are just you know far bigger issues you know any university that whether it has a Confucius Institute or not at the moment has has a a dependence on China to to greater or lesser degrees you know my question with Confucius Institutes really is about the you know, we can evaluate them um, in terms of security risks, but also are we really evaluating them in terms of the educational benefits that they're bringing? I mean, you know, I know in some examples, at least some of the teaching that sort of goes on how China is taught because it's seen as sort of, oh, look, free teaching. They're going to pay for the teachers. We're going to get a bit of income potentially from this. You know, it sort of washes our hands of the, you know, I don't mean for individual universities. I mean, for the, the whole government and our whole education 
education system that you know can we really find interesting and engaging ways to get people you know keen on studying chinese politics chinese economics chinese history chinese culture my impression is that confucius institutes are not managing that and um and because they're not sort of central to universities they they don't get the sort of rigor in checking that they're really doing interesting and meaningful stuff hmm. um jess i, I just want to give you the, the final word on this uh, i think it's uh, people we're looking ahead to election you know uh, this colors virtually every conversation that we have on the walkie show and uh and and in general but if you had to guess uh how would you say if, if there was a change in government if if labor were to win the next election um if you had to guess how would kind of uk government policy shift in uh particularly on china but but also on this on this kind of wider ethical and, and autocracies question Yes, yeah, so I've had, had half an eye on this and uh, I'd recommend people go back and look at some of the recent interventions Rachel Reeves has been making. Uh, so she is increasingly taking a kind of, um, I mean, China sceptic is, is, is probably slightly too far, but, but China cautious uh, line on things. You know, Labour have got a lot of policies about, um, you know, making Britain more self-sufficient, self-dependent. A lot of that has to do with sort of um, energy and, and tech and manufacturing sort of in the UK. It hasn't reached higher education yet, but, you know, the, there's no reason to say that the, the same narrative doesn't make sense here as well. Um, and then on the wider thing, you know, I, I don't know too much about um, David Lammy, who is the Shadow Foreign Secretary. But again, you know, I, I think um, this isn't an issue that, that magically goes away if Labour wins the next general election. I think there will there'll still be a lot of questions asked of the sector to justify, you know, why they engage in certain countries um, to make sure that they, they are doing the due diligence they say they are, that it is robust and that there, there kind of isn't this, you know, financial over-reliance that, that would mean they, they would kind of turn a blind eye or, or struggle to, to walk away from countries where, you know, unexpected events occurred. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't see this going away as a political issue for a long time. And I think Labour is, is getting ready to kind of, um, kind of st- start having a, a wider debate about this. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on walkie.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in the UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Jess, Martin, Michael, who also makes the show happen behind the scenes. We'll be back next week. Jim will be here. In the meantime, stay wonky.